Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 87 of Suncast. My favorite actually sales interaction was I was at SPI. I told someone that uh, I think there'd be value for this on their site. And they said, no, you know, I think, I think we're pretty good. And so I knew where one of their sites was. And I called the guys who were actually in the air during the conference and they diverted the plane, scanned it. And then the next day we went back to the guy and said, here's where the, the opportunity lies. And so I think that worked well. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, solar warriors. Welcome to another episode. This is your host, Nico Johnson, and I'm so glad that you're back with me again this week for episode 87 of Suncast. If you're a regular listener, I really am honored that you're back. And in case you're joining us today for the first time, maybe you're a new Twitter follower or LinkedIn, stoked to have you here with us as well. And I hope that you check out some of our other amazing interviews with solar leaders like Jigger Shaw, Dan Sugar, Ed Fio, and a whole lot of others. And for you true solar warriors out there, you true Suncast fans, if you didn't listen to episode 86 yet, please give it a gander. In it, I explain how you can partner with me to help make Suncast a sustainable part of our lives together by becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe. If you believe in the value of what Suncast brings to the world, please check out that episode and then head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Become a Member button. Today on Suncast, we're going to discuss with Rob Andrews how his Canadian startup, Heliolytics is improving the way operating assets are managed and optimized for long-term yield. Hang tight as we explore why solar plant inspection matters and how it's been done historically, how different aerial inspection methods compare, real data on solar site failure rates, and what Rob sees as the next frontier for solar assets. A bit about Rob as we begin this episode. He's the CEO and founder of Heliolytics, which is a technology company developing advanced inspection tools for renewable energy facilities. Rob has a PhD in mechanical engineering focused on PV system modeling and performance analysis, which I didn't realize you could even get a PhD in. (laughs) Heliolytics spawned from a solar energy performance consulting firm that Rob started in grad school in which He worked with solar energy clients globally to develop system monitoring and maintenance plans, optimize plant performance, and integrate new technologies. Well, thanks again, Solar Warriors, for setting aside this time in your day. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with my friend Rob Andrews of Heliolytics. Today on Suncast, I have yet again the privilege of hanging out with someone who was introduced to me by one of our fellow solar warriors, Mr. Tristan Arion Lurico up in Toronto, put me on to this vanguard in the optimization and O&M side of our business, Mr. Rob Andrews. Rob is the founder of a company that 
I'm going to bet few of you have heard of. And the reason he's on Suncast today is because I want to dig into an area that I have relatively little understanding and scope of, but that has a massive impact on the long-term benefit and value of our industry as a category disrupting the meta industry of energy, right? Like how do these systems actually perform over time? And Rob is the founder and CEO of a company that I mentioned called Heliolytics. And Heliolytics is particularly focused around optimizing PV systems over the life cycle of a project. And they look at both the technology and the systems and processes that project owners utilize to eke out that extra penny per kilowatt hour that they can. Rob, did I do that right? Is that close? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Nice. Welcome to Suncast, man. I'm glad we finally got this recording together. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm looking forward to it. So I'll let you in a minute describe a bit more uh, as we unpack this, what Heliolytics is all about. But I do, again, want to give a hat tip and say, hey, it works. When I say in the intro, if you have someone that you think should be on Suncast, You know, guys like Tristan and Orion Coates and others are constantly sending me ideas. And so I just can't thank them enough. This episode is product of that. So thank you for that. Rob, as we get started here, I don't want to jump into your company story yet because I think there's so much more that is rolled up in how and why someone does what they do. So would you just help us understand the fabric of what has brought you into this step in your career. What was your first foray into solar power? And when did you decide or know that it was where you wanted to focus your energy? I think the first time I really started thinking seriously about it was in university when I was doing mechanical engineering. There was a fourth year class where they talked about all the different renewable energy technologies. And it was really not something I had thought too much about to that point. It seemed like it was a a pertinent time. It was back in, uh, that would have been 2008, when people kind of started to think about climate change. People started to think about these things that were going on. And it seemed like the energy sector was somewhere where uh, an engineer could actually get in and, and make some difference. It seemed a little bit like the underdog story at the time, though, because back uh, around that time, solar projects were going in at you know between 4 to $10 a watt installed. A lot of the class was about how we bring together all these different esoteric subsidies to make solar make sense. And, and it seemed like it was, it was a pretty long shot to, to get into. But what I really liked about it, you know, when looking as a mechanical engineer between you know, solar and wind technology and other renewables, what really drew me to solar is, is a scalability of it. I, I really like the fact that the same technology that can be used on a, a you know, 100 megawatt, multi-thousand acre farm is the same technology that can be used in you know, a single dwelling home or in the developing context as well. And I really like that kind of scalability for it. So that was kind of how I first uh, decided I wanted to get into it. Going from there, I pursued my grad school in that topic. I found a professor who was doing that kind of work and then started doing my, my master's and then PhD focusing on PV technology. That is fascinating. So this is basically your first adventure outside of an academic setting. Help me unpack, what does it mean to actually have a PhD in solar technology or PV technology? I mean, is that focused on the analytics? Is it focused on understanding the research behind it? What were you really trying to dig into there? And how did you intend to make that a real world application or some way that you make money? The PhD itself was focused around uh, system data analytics and modeling. So we're looking at really how do we take this data, how do we peel it back and understand kind of what the underlying performance of, of these systems are. And specifically within that, did a foray looking into modeling of snow losses on systems because we're Canadians and we like that kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, and also looking at surface reflectance, which at the time was a bit of a flyer. I just kind of thought that the science was cool. The commercial applications of this obviously were right around the time I was finishing off this PhD. 
there was a lot of work going on in Ontario around new developers coming in, building out solar projects. And so a lot of them would come by the university, they heard there was a solar program, and they'd ask, you know, hey, we've heard about the solar thing, how do we design these systems? At first, we'd do some seminars for the folks, and then they would start to ask more in-depth questions, and I actually ended up start setting up a consulting firm just around that, around kind of system performance modeling and system design. And that really kind of bridged the gap between what we're doing on the academic side and what people actually want in the real world. So while you were in your grad program or your doctorate degree, excuse me, you set up a side business doing consulting. That's right. Yeah. Because you got to pay for the beer somehow. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Let me get this straight. You then therefore have basically a doctorate in data. It's not data analytics or data science, right? It touches on those, but no, it's it's, it's more the system level of mechanical engineering. How do do you apply the system level analysis to uh, PV systems? Rob, I feel like we're going to probably dive down the rabbit hole here into analytics and the optimization of systems. And before we do that, I really want to ask a bit of an esoteric question. Who was your hero when you were 10 years old? Yeah, you know, I honestly can't remember by name who they were, which is maybe a bad sign. But definitely what I idolized was astronauts and, and, and sci-fi and the idea of, you know, science and exploration and, and, and the whole thing. That was really kind of what probably brought me to engineering at the, at the end of the day. I think recently, looking back at it, you know, astronauts and sci-fi and all that stuff is cool. But if you look at the absolute best case scenario, right, you're, you're an astronaut, you have, your, you have your spaceship, you're traveling around, you're finding new planets. Best case scenario is you find somewhere that is just slightly worse than the planet we're on now. Like that, that is the absolute end goal of, of, any, of any of this. And so, you know, it seems like it's probably a better use of our time to, to make the one we have already work a little bit better. So it seems like you've always been an explorer. As you were exploring the way that folks optimize these systems and build out photovoltaic plants in particular through this consulting business, you began to land on an element mostly, we'll call it undiscovered or misunderstood or underutilized, right? In our pre-interview, you actually called it a blind spot in the industry where data was beginning to fail folks because there wasn't enough better understanding. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to focus on system operation, in particular, the inspection methodologies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that came out of looking at all the system data and, and, and peeling it apart is that there's a lot of great stuff you can do on the data science side, but we're, we're limited at the end of the day by, by the kind of tools we're using to measure the system. And the most difficult challenge was to try to find within this very large array, what is the exact performance of every one of these individual elements inside of it? And it became pretty clear that using just the, the sensors that are installed on, on PV systems then and now was not good enough. What we're looking for is how do we take it, apply another sensor to this system to find where those, those failures are. And that's where the, the concept of aerial inspection uh, using infrared really came in. And maybe just kind of quick sideline into science of why that makes sense. You know, what we're looking for when we do an infrared inspection is that all the solar panels in the array are receiving the same amount of sunlight. And the ones that are working are cooler because they're taking that energy from the sunlight, turning into electricity. The ones that aren't working are hotter because they're turning that into heat. So it's a kind of nice physical example that, you know, what we're doing here actually works. We're taking energy out of the sun or pulling electricity. That's how the panels work. So for us, we're looking for the hot stuff using using infrared. Historically, how have developers and system owners approached finding these, I'm going to call them sort of infrastructure architecture weaknesses in systems and how have they gone about institutionalizing it in their monitoring process? 
Yeah. So for, you know, traditionally the way that folks would be finding these kind of issues would be manually. So you'd be going through the site, you'd be doing something called, you know, IV curve tracing or current clamp, something like that. You, you basically have your technicians walking through opening boxes, measuring things and, and writing it down. And there's a couple of reasons why that wasn't working, uh, you know, aside from the obvious cost of having people work, walk through uh, the accuracy of it was not very high. And uh, there's, there's some legitimate safety concerns with it as well. The, the arc flash hazard of opening up a combiner box thousands of times in the middle of the Arizona heat. There's a lot of reasons why, why folks don't want to do that. And so, so the technique that was using now that people were, had been historically using wasn't really working out that well. And so that's, that's kind of where, where the tech came in. And, you know, really for the first two and a half years of the company, our job, because we were kind of, there, there were some other folks who were doing some infrared inspection work, but not really at any great scale. Out of the consulting work that, that was going on, you're seeing that there are these blind spots in the industry. You're seeing that there is the, the techniques that were being used currently, both through data and, and manual testing, weren't, weren't really working that well. And that's where we kind of really jumped into the idea of using uh, infrared as a, as a tool for, for identification of, of the defects in the site. Was no one using infrared at that point? People were using infrared in, uh, in a more manual way. So there was, you'd walk through the, the site holding your infrared gun and looking at the, the modules as, as it went along. It was very manually intensive. I can't imagine like a 20 or 30 megawatt, let alone a gigawatt size plant in, in the middle of Abu Dhabi, like that being a realistic solution. I understand the scale problem then. Yeah. And you know, the, the data capture is one part of it. The data management is a whole other one. And so uh, yeah, it was a difficult problem. And so did you guys start dabbling with some of the technology coming out on the market, like drones and other you know, cool widgets? Or how did you think about fixing this problem? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the obvious solution in front of us was strap an IR camera to a drone and fly it around and, and, and do, some, do some science. And so, again, back when we were kind of starting the, the company out, the drone technology wasn't quite as advanced as it is now. It wasn't you buy it off the shelf. So we were doing a lot of designing our own drones and figuring this out and at one point, you know, uh, my, my co-founder, Mike, and I just kind of sat down and said, you know, we're, we're spending too long building drones and not enough time actually inspecting sites. And so that's where we, we made the decision that, you know, at the end of the day, our, our main design constraint is we need the camera about 30 feet in the air. It turns out you can buy a carbon fiber 30-foot window washing pole that works pretty well. No way. So we took that and we actually built, uh, for mechanical engineer, what I think is a very cool passive stabilization system, strapped onto the back of a pickup truck and use that to get our camera in the air and drive through sites and capture our first set of data. That's amazing. How did you convince your customers to go along with this? I don't know. Um, you uh, know, I think that we, we put forward the case of why this... Of why the IR me measuring was important. Yeah, and why, why the IR measuring was important. And, and they kind of bought that. And then how we did it, they were kind of like, well, whatever, like, give me a report and then I'll pay you. And if you don't, I won't pay you. So, so that kind of worked out. And our first customer, uh, Hugh Kuhn, who's, who's... No way. Hugh Kuhn was your first customer. Yeah, yeah. Hey. So he was awesome. So that, that worked out really well. And actually, to be honest, that first project, but that first project actually worked out really well. We, we found some really good actionable stuff. That was really what kind of brought us to the next step. And, you know, it went amazingly well. We were actually able to do about 20 megawatts a day. We ran into our first major roadblock with that technology, which was actually literally a roadblock. We ran into projects that had ditches that we couldn't drive through anymore. And right. we, had to, we had to modify the tech. And so that's where, you know, obviously the goal was always to get this thing in the air. Kind of had continued to play around with the drones. Pretty quickly, kind of with our experience with the truck and also with our experience on designing systems, realized that drones are very cool technology, but they had certain logistical constraints and also certain constraints around the kind of payload we could put on. You can only put so heavy a camera onto a drone. And again, this was actually after Intersolar. We were sitting down and drinking beers and saying, wouldn't it be awesome if we just strap this into an airplane and we didn't have to worry about any of that stuff? Wow. And then we kind of looked at each other and was like, yeah, that would be cool. And then that's where, that's where we decided to, to go ahead and kind of really seriously look at the aircraft. And then just to be clear, that's, that's, where, we, that's where we're right now. So, so we've done 
about uh, eight gigawatts of inspections with the aircraft. And uh, it's, it's fully based off of a manned aircraft that we have a custom camera payload that goes on to that. Yeah, I'm glad you actually pointed out the manned aircraft because a lot of folks when they hear aircraft might think as well, one of the military style drones, right? A more capable drone. Uh, as I understand it, most drones you're talking about, can you give us, yeah, actually give us an idea of the scale differential of the type of camera you can have on a drone versus a manned aircraft? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I always say as soon as they'll let me buy a Predator drone, we'll be a drone company. <laughs> but yeah, there's a pretty big difference in what you can put on the plane and specifically with the kind of cameras we use, that's a bit of our secret sauce. But generally speaking, the resolution that we're able to get on the, the aircraft is about 48 times higher than what we can put on the drone uh, in infrared and about 10 times higher in invisible. And it also gives us a lot of flexibility. It means that as soon as a new sensor comes on the market that we like, we'll integrate it. We're actually just in the process of putting a new sensor on the camera on the plane that just came out like last month. And because we have the, this really flexible platform, we can just make sure to keep this thing going without having to worry about design constraints on, on the drone. I have to imagine your big targets, the Cypress Creeks, the Next Eras, you know, the Sunetics of the world, they all have someone on their team who is a hobby pilot and maybe even more than a hobby pilot, what's preventing them from just equipping their own planes and scanning IR and capturing this data for themselves for something cheaper than what it would cost them to hire Heliolytics? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, you know, there's a bunch of folks who have that, the hobby pilot side. There's a lot of folks who have bought the drones and are flying those. Fundamentally, the reasons that we, we use the aircraft and stick with the aircraft is logistically, it's more efficient. We can get to more sites faster. The data is a higher quality and more consistent. I think that's a misconception some people have around the aircraft thing is that this is a we're trading enough quality for speed or something like that. But this is actually the data we get is actually a lot higher quality than what you can get off a drone. And we get the data consistency, which means we can feed it into the, the automation analysis. And to answer your question directly, the reason that it is very difficult to, to do this in-house and build it out is that the, the data capture, to be honest, is the easy part. The processing, the analytics on the back end, that's where we've actually spent the majority of our development time and chops in building that out. You know, you can imagine if you have either one site with 4 million solar panels or 500 distributed sites, each with you know a couple thousand, it becomes untenable to do that in a way and, and to a detail that's going to get you the information that you need to get out of the system. And so that's where we, when I kind of describe what the company is, it's it's kind of the mix of a software company and a trucking company. You know, on the on the trucking company side, it's managing logistics, it's getting these aircraft into place and, and getting the stuff scanned. But the software side is really the important part, where we take you know terabytes of information and condense it down into a product that you can actually use to make decisions about what to do next on the solar farm. That's so powerful. Now, I have to imagine, I mean, we could spend an entire episode just talking, geeking out on the stuff that you've got your PhD on. I'm not sure that all of the Suncast audience would appreciate it for, in my opinion, what you're doing to revolutionize the way that we measure these systems. Not only (laughs) the value you're bringing to banks, you're actually going to try to test whether or not that P50 and P90 are so far off. But really squeezing, as I mentioned, that extra kilowatt hour out uh, or the extra juice out. I think it's mostly knowing whether or not you're hitting your IRR, if I had a guess. But you're an entrepreneur. This is a bootstrapped venture. As I understand, you took on no outside capital. Could you help me understand where you've pivoted along the way in refining the business and any outside influences or you know board members and other sectors that you've modeled or tried to replicate to just be different in the industry? Yeah, you know, I think that the company that we have here is at the nexus of solar, which is a rapidly growing, changing market all the time, 
drones and aerial inspection, which is obviously a very topical thing right now, and artificial intelligence. And all of those things coming together means that the business plan changes, you know, every couple weeks uh, in terms of how we're tweaking and how we're kind of navigating through it as it goes. And I think being really responsive with our customers and understanding what they need from there is, is important because, yeah, the product we were selling two years ago is not the product that we're selling now. So, yeah, I think it's been, been important to, to kind of keep up with that and, and continue to pivot as, as it goes. So now about three and a half years in as the CEO, you guys are starting to get some traction. I'd like to really understand how you decided, apart from the random inbound of being at conferences and being on the circuit and trying to drum up business, how did you strategically decide to go after your first customers such that it would anchor you in the minds of secondary customers? And from that, how do you think about growing your team as the CEO? For the first three years of, of the company, our entire marketing budget was conference attendance. And, you know, really in this market, this is a true, you know, enterprise sales scenario where, you know, the number of customers we have in the, in the market is, is, you know, maybe 50. And what that means is that treating your customers well, understanding them well, and, and interacting with them regularly is, is, is the only way forward for that. And so it's, it's really important, you know, in our first projects, you know, we definitely lost money on those but that's great because we, we were able to go through, we were able to use that as a learning experience, we were able to make sure that we gave the best possible product we could and then use that to, to, to drive into the next one. And, you know, especially the early stage, one of the real nice advantages that we had using an aircraft is that uh, we didn't uh, have to ask uh, before flying a site, um, which was actually an incredibly useful tool at the early stages of the company because we could say, here's what we think the value is of this product to your, to your site. And by the way, here we can show it to you. Because you don't need their permission to fly over their site. You do need their permission to go park and fly a drone. You do, yes. And, and at this point, I should be extremely clear that as an internal rule, we do not distribute that, the data to, to folks who would not have physical site access. And so we're not, we're not spying on anyone. But if, if there's a party that's involved with a project who would have the ability to send someone to walk around on site and inspect it, there's someone who, who we'd, be, we'd be given the data to. Yeah, so that, that was that was incredibly effective. I mean, kind of walk the walk, you know, let's let's show you what, what it can be and, 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 and let's build that product out. My, my favorite actually sales interaction was I was at SPI. I told someone that uh, I think there'd be value for this on their site. And they said, no, you know, I think I think we're pretty good. And so I knew where one of their sites was. And I called the guys who were actually in the air during the conference and they diverted the plane, scanned it. And then the next day we went back to the guy and said, here's where the, the opportunity lies. And so I think that worked well. That's baller, dude. That is such a hustler move. I love it. I love it. So. How long before you and Mike began to hire people? So it was pretty pretty early on. Uh, we brought the our, our CFO on Scott, who's instrumental. I think that the I mean, obviously having Mike Mike has been is, is fantastic on the CTO side, but having someone who genuinely enjoys numbers as your CFO is 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 a godsend. And so yeah. that was that was very very good to to have them on board. And that was within the first couple months of the company because we did have because you already had contracts. Yeah. 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 You could forecast revenue. Okay. So you've got your founding team now. You're two months in. Might as well call your CFO one of your co-founders because that's really early in uh, in the growth of a company. But how do you build from there? Do you go on the analytics side or do you go on the sales side? What's the chicken and egg here? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's uh, it's 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 building the product. I mean, the the best sales tool you can have is a product that works. <laughs> so really, kind of making sure that we're we're able to handle the throughput, we're able to scale out and, and able to build that forward. So. Definitely kind of our, our next kind of set of investments was on 
the analysis side, and then we kind of bifurcate between analysis being the folks who are turning the crank and reports out, and equally on the development side who are making the more efficient crank. And it's kind of a balancing act, kind of balancing between those two. How long before you felt like you finally got some momentum, like we're really going to start scaling this thing? I think as soon as we got the aircraft in the air and working was when we started to see some some immediate ability to scale. And, and, and I think a lot of it was driven in that early stage by, by that ability to do that, that proactive prospecting. Uh, I think that was, that was huge. It allowed us to tell that story in a way that was believable. We didn't have to get people to trust our story, though that is obviously important. We, we could just show them. And I think that, that that's, you know, it really shows the confidence in your product when you're willing to step out you take the financial burden on of doing that initial trial and bring it forward. And, and, and I think that, you know, a common refrain we you hear for entrepreneurs or folks is, you know, don't give stuff away for free. You know, you don't, you can't buy stuff with exposure, uh, which is absolutely true. But if you're making the decision, it's a whole different ballgame. I, I think when, when you're making the decision that it is a financial investment you want to make, that is a very different story than someone saying, do this for me for free for exposure. And I think that was, that was really helpful for us. I love the, just the entrepreneurial flavor of how, you thought about going and getting those first clients, especially when you're shooting into a relatively small barrel of very agile fish (laughs) and sophisticated to boot. My guess though, is you guys now are sitting kind of at the higher end of the pile, if you will, of folks that have access to data. Do you have visibility into stuff like failure rates on sites? What can you tell us that you guys have learned from eight gigawatts of sites uh, evaluated today? There are a lot of interesting stories uh, to be told from, from the data. Um, but probably the one we'll go into is the most general one, which is in general, things are going pretty well. We're not seeing any kind of big hand grenades in the industry of, uh, of stuff that's popping up. If we look on average, we'll see, uh, this might be a striking number, but, but I'll put it in context. Uh, on average, we'll see about 1.2% of a site being off when we fly that string and module failures combined. And that's, that's fairly significant, but what's interesting is the median. So, you know, 50% of sites will have a failure rate of 0.55 or less, which is more representative of what we'd see. And and because we have such a big difference in median and average, what we can get from that is that it's a really skewed distribution. So we have a lot of sites that are doing quite well. And then we have a small set of sites that are doing quite poorly, probably about 80-20. Have you begun to identify any common thread or any common traits among the sites that are doing quite poorly? That is kind of part of the, the data process we're, we're going through. What we can definitely say right off the bat is there are significant differences between site operation methodologies. And so we can see kind of, you know, what works and what doesn't. There are significant differences between uh, different manufacturers, but more importantly, between age of modules. I think with all manufacturers are going to have batches that are bad. So it's a combination of manufacturer and age that, that can be kind of telling of what we're going to see in the site. It certainly is very interesting. And, and actually, I think a really interesting dynamic we've seen is we started to do some 10-year-old sites. And that is a whole different story. We're seeing a lot different failure rates. We're seeing more numerous failure rates. And the fundamental question that you have to ask there, and this is relevant for, I think, the whole industry, is, is that what 10-year-old technology looks like or is that what a 10-year-old site looks like? The answer to that is very different. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, Ed May Kelsey in episode 55 referred to those sites. When I asked her about data around the industry, she referred to those as legacy sites. And I like that word, right? Legacy, because frankly, where there were, it was used, folks were in many ways blind and shooting in the dark. Folks were guessing what's going to work. If we look back, BP and Sharp were manufacturing in the top five of the world back then. It was a different ballgame altogether. But what occurs to me that I think is fantastic, certainly coming from your consulting roots, is another very viable 
revenue stream for you guys ought to be simply consulting current IPPs, whether or not they use your technology on their strategic approach to operations and maintenance, given your access to data, which you can't disclose publicly. You're not going to write papers and sell that data. You're not allowed, but you could certainly give advice or guidance. Is that something that you guys are thinking about? What an interesting idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely something we, we, we put thought into. And of course, again, just to be clear, first and foremost, you know, our customers' data is, is, is their own. It is not something that we can commercialize without their consent. But there are a lot of interesting ways that we can utilize that data and, and can work with our customers to really help them drive value out of that. I would imagine. Well, Rob, that's a lot for us to digest. You've got a lot of uh, interesting things going on. I want to bring it back up to 10,000 feet and move into a section that we often call hot or hype. So if you're familiar with the show, you'll know this is the part where I name a specific market or topic and you can spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or all hype. We'll start, as always, with microgrids as a core part of the future of our electric grid. The way I interpret this question is talking about grid defection and the idea of the changes in the way that the utilities are, are going to be used in, in, in the future. And, and I, think, I, th- I think, no, I think that, you know, there's a really interesting article uh, by RMI, Rocky Mountain Institute, talking about the economics of grid defection. And they said, yes, this is possible. We can create, you know, microgrid or you can go off the grid yourself and, and create your own personal microgrid. It technically is feasible. We shouldn't do it because this is not a, an efficient or the most efficient use of our resources. And so I think that microgrids, yes, in, from the point of view of resiliency, but from the point of view of is this a future of what a utility looks like, I think this, that's not the most efficient solution. Very good. Very good. I appreciate the extra analysis on grid defection. That's a nice angle. All right, moving along. Hotter hype, the nexus of renewables and the electrification of automobiles. Yes. Yeah. I, I think this is what, uh, beyond just storage writ wide, I think this is what I'm most excited about. I think that there's a lot of transformational things that can happen when, when you see the changes that are happening with cars and automotive and, and ownership models and what's happening with, with intermittency of solar. I mean, as an example, I don't own a car. I, I live downtown. Uh, when I need a car, I rent one or I use one of these car sharing services. And it's great. I think the whole idea of car ownership is going to change. And I think that seeing cars beyond just a transportation mode, but as, as an actual you know, battery on wheels and grid resource is going to be really enabling to, to kind of future car ownership. But another interesting angle that I just actually heard at the um, CIA Southeast conference was about the secondary market for used automotive batteries, expecting that by 2030, there's going to be one terawatt hour per year of second life automotive batteries that aren't good enough to go into cars, but that are good enough to use for grid services. And this is going to be a huge influx of ultra cheap storage that we're going to see coming from the secondary market after these vehicles. That is brilliant. Never heard that. One terawatt hour. Yeah. Yeah. It, it trained, I don't know what his source was. He sounded very convinced of this fact. So <laughs> that is amazing. That is, that's a really cool number. Okay. So let's move to the next often polarizing topic, hot or hype blockchain and the energy market. I'm not an expert in this. And, and I, I'd argue most people are not. I think that at this core blockchain distributed ledger, this should be a really boring conversation. Yeah, I don't think it's taken that way. I mean, I've, I've, I think that when we look at how this could affect an energy market, we're talking about transactional issues and how we can make these transactions more efficient. At the end of the day, like a distributed ledger is just a really inefficient database that doesn't require people to trust it. That's a core thing about it. And I'm not sure if we really have a trust issue in our transactional electricity market. Do we, do we really need to, to have this, this, uh, this trustless infrastructure in place, or do we trust our utilities enough to manage our utility bills so they could also manage our energy transactions? 
So I think that in terms of a transformational tool, I think it's hype in terms of maybe it's a way that a utility could improve their internal infrastructure. Yes, but I think that's going to be way more boring than a lot of people think it's going to be. All right. Hot or hype? Solar plus storage. Uh, yes, yes, that, that is, I, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. No, it's I, not, no, no, it's not. I, I think, I think that solar plus storage is what I in the industry has been waiting for since I was sitting in that fourth year MechEng class, seeing how, see, hearing all the reasons why solar is kind of cool, but could never actually take over as an, as a viable energy source, you know, intermittency, dispatchability, all these things that are kind of traditional knowns in the, in the engineering space. And so I think that we're seeing economical, Variable, variable time scale storage coming out, I think is transformational for the industry, but I think it's transformational for the planet. Okay, last and new entrant into the hot or hype this week. Hot or hype, bifacial modules taking over the utility sector of our industry. So I think for, for me personally, hot, because um, for my PhD research, uh, we, I, I studied uh, spectral albedo reflections, and this resurgence in bifacial means that people will actually maybe read my papers. Uh, <laughs> Very awesome. So, so it's, it's great. You know, I think it's a really cool technology. I think it's the, the next incremental step. I think this is not a transformational tool in our industry, but, you know, I think it is a way that when applied properly, you can eco that extra IRR for the project, and we can keep on falling down that solar cost here. So I have two questions as a follow-on to that that I've been thinking about. How does a switch to bifacial affect monitoring, and in particular, our scanning and, and the things that you do from the air that you can't see the backside of the module? Yeah, yeah. So for specifically on IR, um, it, it would still work the same way. If you have a hotspot on the back versus on the front, we'll, we'll, we'll see it. We've already done some, some aerial of, of bifacials. It works. Um, I think that the, you know, the, the fundamental question here around bifacial is that it is difficult to model. And actually, like I, I say that people, you know, reading my papers kind of jokingly, but the focus what we're looking at is that the, the spectrum of light, the, the, the color of the light is fundamentally different on reflected light versus light that's coming in from the top. And green grass versus white sand, even though the total amount of energy reflected might be the same, it's not going to mean a spectrum that the cells are going to be able to respond to in the same kind of way. And so all that means is that it's a much more complex problem to model, which means it's a much more difficult problem to bank. And I think that's going to be the fundamental issue of this. And therein lies the problem with, you know, as I mentioned before, the major, you know, the Mazdars of the world winning landmark low price bids and not getting the award on projects because of the inherent bankability problem of the yield report. Yeah. Yeah. The follow-up question to that, which I think you may have some insight into, is what about cleaning? Cleaning systems is going to be a big is already a, a big issue, a big opportunity on one side. How do the current approaches to the market cleaning of solar systems apply when we see a transfer to bifacial and you now have to clean the backside or yeah. underside, as it were? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think I think there's kind of two conflating issues that come there. One is cleaning of tracking systems, which is harder than fixed tilt systems. And that's important because bifacial systems, the highest gain you get is on single axis tracking systems. And then also looking at how do you clean the backside of it. And it's, it's interesting, I just kind of realized this recently, so you're hearing some folks talk of some of the Middle Eastern projects, a lot of those that are in the desert, those are fixed tilt, even though they have a really high solar resource, because you can fit robotic cleaning tools on that more efficiently than you can on a tracking system. And that was actually one of the fundamental things that, that made some of those economics work was 
daily cleaning through robotics to, to, to make that work. So uh -huh. when you transition, so that, you know, it's already a, a kind of an issue to, to figure out how do you in an automated way clean tracking systems. And now you got to clean the back end as well with, with robots. So, um, I mean, someone's going to figure it out. It's going to be, it's going to be there, but it's, uh, I actually haven't heard it brought up before. So that's, that's a really interesting question. I hope some people are thinking about it. <laughs> there you go. Some of the, one of the smartest guys I know in the industry gets an idea introduced to him here on Suncast. So there you go. Suncast Solar Warriors. There's an opportunity for you. I love this. Actually, this is the second time we've had an interview on the show with a Canadian where a new opportunity for building a business was introduced. Etienne said that if someone would build blockchain around warranty registry, he would be uh, very interested in that and integrate it into PowerHub. So here we go. Every time we have a Canadian on the show, we dive into a new area where you, Solar Warrior, could build the next landmark disruptive business. Who's going to clean the backside of all these bifacial module sites? You're growing as an entrepreneur and a CEO, but you've already had some pretty interesting experiences. I'd love to know what are some key lessons and takeaways from the most important mentors already in your life or career? I think the first one has been to, to learn to be intentional about finding mentors. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that that's, that's an important, uh, important thing. And honestly, something I, I've actually recently started to, to start, start my venture out on. So that being said, you know, I think that one of the big ones was actually my father from earlier in my life, where one of the big things he always said was on a management side, to always catch people doing something right. Very easy to catch people doing something wrong, especially when you're growing, there's all things changing. Taking time to actually go and offer praise where it's needed is, is important. I think the other thing that was really helpful for me, especially starting out the, the company and, and really kind of focusing on where we want to look at is bringing a global context into the way that I think about things. He worked internationally. He brought the idea that our market is not just, just North America. We are, we are part of a global community. And actually, as we've started to do some, some global work, that's been really helpful, but also just thinking about the context of the technology. I believe that Canadians probably do this better than just about anyone, certainly better than most North Americans. Uh, speaking as a, a, a United States citizen, we tend to be a lot more ethnocentric than most, unfortunately. I really admire that about the Canadian culture is you guys really do have a global context. And frankly, like down in Latin America, Canadians are kicking Americans' butts all day long in terms of influence, in terms of injecting not just uh, actual capital, but uh, economic capital, but social and thought capital. It's unbelievable the impact that the Canadians have had in Latin America compared with you know, United States citizens. Before we move into the final questions, I'd love to know what corners are you looking around? What do you believe is the next frontier market, so to speak, for us and where solar is going to move from being an ancillary service to more of a standard offer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the obvious answer is storage. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's fundamentally transformational of what kind of industry we're in, right? We've been up to now, we've been selling dumb electrons into the grid and hoping on the charity of, of utilities to, to use them as they will. And I think that as we start to integrate storage, we become the actual players in the energy ecosystem. And, and right. I think that's that's really important. And and I think that, you know, looking more broadly, there was actually at the, the GTM conference that Wood McKenzie was giving a presentation talking about what future projections are for our energy mix going into the future. And they said all this great stuff about how solar was growing and everything, and it was fantastic. And then we saw that solar had this tiny blip and the rest of it was going to be taken out by natural gas. And, you know, I think us as an industry have to take a step back and say, you know, that's, that's not good enough. And as an industry, I don't think we kind of take a step back. And I, I think we believe our own marketing that, that solar is good only because of the economics and not because of the climate change and social implications of it. Uh, but I think that uh, us as an industry, we have to recognize it. If there are people who are actually going to have a meaningful impact on us hitting our climate change goals, as the people who are listening to this podcast and as people who are doing this kind of work, if we're seeing these forecasts where, yeah, solar is going to have an incremental impact on the grid, I think that storage is the technology that's going to allow us to really eat into that market share and is going to allow us to make the, the actual change we need to make. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. 
Well, as we head into the home stretch, I'd love to get a little bit of insight into how you prepare yourself daily. In particular, I believe the reading is leading. I say it all the time. I'd love to know what's on your nightstand. What are you reading now? And what books have shaped and influenced you as a career person, a CEO? A book that I read, and I think a lot of folks have read early in their life, was one called Ender's Game. It was a sci-fi book about... Yeah, Ender's Game is awesome. It's going in space. But I I was actually, uh, I was in like a mini MBA, like management course, and I wrote an entire essay on uh, how Ender's Game applies to management theory. Uh, And if you actually look at the way that they think about managing teams, about the agile way that they set people up and to to be autonomous, but still work towards a common goal, it's really interesting. So it might be worth a reread from through the lens of, of how it's applied to management style. And actually, the other one that, that I think is just a really good read uh, for anyone technical is something called Slide Rule by Neville Shute. Um, it's the autobiography of Neville Shute, who was an aerospace engineer and then a writer. But it's his autobiography of how he went from an engineer to running the, uh, the RAF's dirigible program, making giant blimps, and a lot of like how he, how he structured himself and, and the companies around him and, and kind of how he grew as an engineer uh, into, the, into that role. And I think that, that was really cool and really well written. So cool. Well, as we wrap up here, how can folks find you, get more of you? You mentioned that you're not so active on Twitter. Is, is LinkedIn or direct to email the best way? Yeah, LinkedIn LinkedIn and email is good. Um, and I guess we'll maybe be able to link to that. I've been known to tweet from time to time, but, uh, but yeah, LinkedIn and email is probably the best way. Yeah. And for those who are looking for them on Twitter, we'll link to it as well on the show notes. Now, how can the Suncast audience help you? Before we have the final question, is there anything that we could do to further what you're working on? you know, honestly reach out if you'd like to talk about, about what we're doing. But I think more broadly, we need to kind of think as an industry about sharing, knowledge sharing and, and data sharing. And I think that we've seen a lot of really good examples of how that's worked out beneficially for folks in the industry. And I think that uh, kind of looking towards how kind of pooling together some of our knowledge and data can, can really kind of help the whole industry will be, uh, will be important. Let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. Well, one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? What we're seeing and what I think we're going to see, especially from what we're seeing in older sites, is system repowering. You know, on a very technical level, I think that what we're going to see over the lifetime of projects is that there's going to be a real economic incentive to start to repower these systems as they continue through their life cycle. And we're actually already seeing this in the wind industry. This is one of the hot topics they're talking about now. How do we get more power of the installations we already have? And I think we're already seeing places where there are gaps where we can, we can start to fill that in. So. I think that's something that is is not being talked about now, but I think it's something that we're, we're going to be talking about in the future. And along with that, what we're going to do with all the old solar panels. I think that we really need to think about what is our end game for these millions of solar panels we're putting out in the world. Uh, and that's yeah. something I don't think anyone's talking about. Well, there's a, actually, I think in, in Europe, more uh, prevalent. Uh, there are a couple of companies out in California now that are talking about recycling and reuse of secondary market of solar panels. I agree with you. Uh, I think once again, the wind industry is a bellwether for what's going to happen in the solar industry, right? And those of you solar warriors that are paying attention, you will figure out ways that the wind and other uh, energy industries that are you know years ahead of us are bellwethers for what we could expect here and in the future. So when and if these things do come to pass, we'll certainly talk about them here on Suncast. Rob Andrews, CEO of Heliolytics. So grateful for you on the show today, sir. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much. This has been fantastic. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. 
Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.